Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Um, I am your host, Polina Popova, and today we will be talking to Megan Swift about her book, Picturing the Page, Illustrated Children's Literature and Reading Under Lenin and Stalin. This book was published in 2020. Uh, by the University of Toronto uh, Press. And so, um, Megan, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, Very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Palina. Well, I'm a professor of Russian literature. I work at the University of Victoria, which is in Canada. And I teach all sorts of courses on the Russian Revolution, as well as Russian literature. And my the time period that I'm a specialist in is the 1920s and the 1930s. And I'm just fascinated with this period in all of its aspects, not like its, its visual aspects, its literary aspects, the cinema from that time, the poster art, everything, architecture. And so all of my... Um, years of experience of teaching and researching in this area came into this book. And um, Megan, can you uh, maybe start with um, telling our listeners uh, how you uh, got to write the book, where the idea for the book uh, came from, and um, basically, um, you know, how it all started for you? How it started for me was with a, a problem that didn't fit, a little, a little clue that something was wrong and, and I, it was bothering me. And how it happened was that I was on a research trip uh, to Russia and I was sitting in the National Library, uh, National Public Library, and I had ordered a, a copy of The Bronze Horseman by Pushkin. And for your, for your listeners, the Bronze Horseman is one of the most famous works of Russian literature. Um, it's written in 1833, but the version that I had ordered was illustrated by a very famous artist, Alexander Benoit, who is from the World of Art movement from, the, from um, just pre-revolutionary, just prior to the revolution. And I was looking at the illustrations and I knew that I knew that series really well, the illustrated series really well. I knew that it was a really long one. It had 33 illustrations. I knew that Benoit had added to it over the years. And I knew that it was really spooky, really supernatural and frightening. Like it was, um, these were amazing illustrations, but this particular edition that I was looking at was from 1936. So it's under, it was uh, put out under Stalin. And I could see, I could see that someone had 
tampered with the illustrations. That's how I thought of it. Someone had tampered with the illustrations. <laughs> Someone had taken some lots out. And so the story that the illustrations was telling was different. Huh. Like, interesting. Like, yeah, the, the visual narrative had been changed. So, so you remember the original, right? The original number of illustrations. Some of them were taken out? Yes. So I was uh-huh. comparing it to the copy in my mind. And I thought, hmm, somebody had a different idea in mind when they, they kind of brutally edited this series, the, be- the illustrated series down. Meanwhile, they hadn't changed a single word of the text the literary text was exactly the same. And so I flipped the book over to look at the publication information. And you you know, Paulina, because you work with, with literature, that on the back of books, they have a tiny little notation of um, the what, tirage, cir- circulation. And they have, uh, they very often note down what the series title is. And so I, I turned it over and it said, uh, Biblioteca Skolnica school child's library and so in my mind this was one of the most terrifying poems like its themes are madness and despair so i was a little surprised that it had been put out for the school child (laughs) and i wasn't surprised after i finished this book project but at the time i was surprised and I also noticed that its circulation was 300,000, which meant something to me because I knew the average size for a, for a book put out around this time was about 50,000. So all of a sudden I had a mystery on my hand, which was why was this book put out for children? I wanted, I needed the answer to that personally. Why was it put out in an enormous circulation? Why had the illustrations been tampered with and why was like, there's other mysteries involved. Like Benoit had already emigrated from the, from the Soviet union by this time was living in France. So, so he was not a person who in 1936 would be the obvious choice to republish. He should be, he should be persona non grata at this point. So all of these things that didn't fit inspired me to look deeper, look further, and started me on the journey of uh, children's literature under Lenin and Stalin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It always fascinates me in the work of uh, historians, historians of literature, literary studies, scol- scholars, that they work almost like the detectives. And it's not the, it's, it, it is the detective work, right? What, what you did and what you uh, started with and it's so fascinating to me. Um, Megan, I wonder if um, we can talk a little bit about general methodology of your book. And um, I know in it, you mentioned uh, previous studies of Soviet uh, illustration, um, illustrations um, and um previous studies on the history of illustrations of children's books. But I wonder if you can um, talk about uh, your own approach and um, how it is different from the previous studies. Well, my approach, which I think is different from things that I've seen before that have been published in children's literature, was to take one work and, it, and I tended to focus on works from the past. So things, the uh, w- works of what are termed children's reading. So that means 
works from the past that are now republished for a new reader. And very often when you have children's reading, the way that that publishers refresh the work for a new reader is by adding illustrations, by, by hiring, a, a, a commissioning a new, a new illustrator. And what I did that was different is I took a single work and I showed how it had been illustrated over time all the new illustrations that were happening over time. So it really brought forward how images that were very, very important to the Soviets for, for political and cultural reasons, like the image of the peasant, right? Who is, who is um, somebody who is supposed to be the beneficiary of the, so of the Soviet state, someone who is supposed to be doing better under the Soviets, like the priest, uh, like religion, the Soviet state is officially atheist. So how do you depict a, a priest? Even if it's an older work, how do you depict it for new readers? Mothers, um, also they're going out into the workforce for the first time. How are you depicting mothers now? How are you depicting the Russian countryside, what it looks like? What about writers themselves, authors, like a famous writer like Pushkin, the father of Russian literature? How is he being depicted? Um, all of these things come forward very, very, um, in a very, very interesting way. When you look at how a single work has been illustrated um, in pre-revolutionary times, then in the 1920s, then in the 1930s, how is that same work illustrated in wartime? And, and that, um, it makes you realize how much the political culture influences illustrations, even for children. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you basically looked at the journey sort of so so to speak of the illustration through time right of the illustrations and the books through time right exactly so it's mm -hmm. almost uh exactly so you can see the progression mm -hmm. or the or the or regression the <laughs> right um i actually was both surprised and not by uh something that you revealed in the very beginning of the book when you um, wrote about the lack of decent graphics in the pre-revolutionary Russian children's literature, so pre-1917th or even 19th century uh, Russian children's literature. And um, as a person born and raised in the Soviet Union and then in Russia, I wasn't surprised at all. I was more surprised as a scholar, but wasn't surprised as a person coming from Russia, because I remember um, some of the, you know, pre-revolutionary books being republished um, and reprinted in the late Soviet times in the 80s, and they were kind of boring. Like, a child just knows the good book from the bad book, right? And they were kind of um, boring compared to the sort of bold and vibrantly, vibrantly illustrated um, books from the Soviet era from like by Marshak or Mayakovsky. So can we, my question here is, can we then deduct just from this mere fa fact that the pre-revolutionary uh, booksellers, um, editors, illustrators, whoever were involved in children's uh, literature at the time were much less uh, politicized. They were not pursuing propaganda as much, not interested in propaganda, and uh, that children's illustrators of um, the imperial Russia were not 
um, like you said, at the very heart of mass political culture, like you said about the Bolsheviks. Um, and can you talk a little bit about what changed with uh, the revolution of 1917? Sure. So... This is a really interesting question because I agree with you that pre-revolutionary children's illustrations are not as good as the, as especially the early Soviet illustrations. So early ones coming about for the first 10 years after 1917 are really incredible, right? Like you said, so vibrant, so stunning. And this really goes to the question that I get a lot from non-Russian readers which is that they expect their expectation go about Russian about Soviet illustrated literature is that it's it's bad. It's not good because it's it's full of political propaganda. To them those two things must go together. And in fact this case shows us that it's the opposite. So pre-revolutionary literature is not as politicized. I mean, all literature carries with it the politics of its culture to a certain extent, whether it's foregrounded or, or not foregrounded. But um, in the Soviet period, of course, it's very much foregrounded. And, but, and at the same time, it's really top quality literature a lot of the time and especially the the artistic work is really top quality so that's actually can be quite surprising for a western reader to realize but i think uh, there's a number of different things happening at the same time in pre-revolutionary children's literature you tended not to have the top artists of the day as your illustrators the they weren't participating in children's literature and that really changed with the world of art group, which is actually not a Soviet phenomenon that happens before the revolution, like just around 1900. You have this group of amazing artists that just become really interested in book art. And you have an artist like Ivan Bilibin, who is doing astounding illustrations for Russian fairy tales. And fairy tales, of course, are not considered at that time to be only a, a children's literature genre. They're read and enjoyed by adults and they're, and the same adults read them to their children who enjoy, happen to enjoy the illustrations. So they're dual purpose, they're dual audience works, but they're, but those uh, fairy tales, Russian fairy tales done by Bilibin are of an incredible quality. And then you get another member of the World of Art group, Alexander Benoit, who, who consciously does a children's work. He produces his Azbuka, the alphabet, which once again is, is this is a, an artist who produces for adults and who produces for children and, and who becomes a specialist in book art and who really understands how uh, typography goes together with, uh, with the illustrations, everything, the whole way that you produce a book is important, but it's not mass culture yet. It's only for the elite. Only the elite can afford these types of very beautiful books. And so the Soviets take that, uh, the concept of the children's book and because the circumstances of the revolution had changed things, um, you know, turned everything on its head, they really managed to attract the best artists into book illustration. And so you, the, the just the overall quality of book illustration is much better after 1917 than it was before 1917. So I think even though it is it, it is political, it's still 
amazing art of the of the highest quality. And you know what what you just said made me think of the um, of uh, the argument made by Marietta Chudakova, which I think you actually go a little against it. Uh, her argument was that. Uh, because of the um, repressions, the purges, a lot of uh, the, the 20s and especially the 30s, a lot of the really great artists ended up in children's literature and, and illustrations because they were they tried to sort of hide away or, you know, it was a safe space. But I think you take this argument further or go a little against it and, and you actually talk about the class, right? It was more, especially in the 20s, it wasn't necessarily about uh, the politics going from above. It was something that was also going um, from below. Am I right? Or maybe I'm misunderstanding this. No, I think that's right. And and of course, of course, it's true that artists, uh, literary artists as well, like Mandelstam and Pasternak, tended to um, start to participate in children's literature, as you say, as a safe space, because children's literature seemed to not be as patrolled as much by um, by by politics. But that happens a little bit later. Um, it's in the in the first years after the revolution. These these artists and these writers were all friends. They all hung out together. They all knew each other. The avant garde was a, uh, was a very vibrant uh place where where art was created and i and i think that that many of these artists were were very happily creating alongside children's writers like you've got the the tchaikovsky um vladimir lebedev um partnership right and um and you've got the uh, kanashevich yeah uh tchaikovsky partnership and these are like wonderful partnerships between top-level artists, and top-level writers. Mm-hmm. I see, I see. Um, now I would like to discuss your argument about a Soviet picture book for children being, um, so to speak, a revolutionary medium, like you mm-hmm. call it in your book. Um, and I thought that was really important, so I was wondering, can you please talk about Soviet children's books and the immediate post in the immediate post-revolutionary times um, after the death of Lenin. And can we also, since you already touched upon that, but can we also uh, relate that to the 30s and compare the 20s to the 30s, uh, the epoch of Stalinist cultural revolution, uh, probably mid-30s to late-30s, right? Um, These two epochs often are compared by the historians of Soviet literature and Soviet culture. So I wonder if we, if you can do um, the same uh, for our listeners. And finally, it goes along uh, the same line. More generally, um, Megan, what do you think? What historical periodization can we use when describing the history of illustration of the Soviet children's literature of the time? Sure. Okay. So to your question about the revolutionary medium. Uh, I think a couple of things are happening at the same time under Lenin and under Stalin. Uh, and for, what's happening is that there are publishing practices that have never existed before that are that are have now become a reality. So um, you have children's 
literature, children's publishing as a mass phenomenon. So I, I mentioned it before that if before it was to have top quality books, it was mostly for an, an elite market. So for, for families that could afford a, an expensive book for their children before the revolution, there was a, a true effort made to have these uh, books produced by top quality artists and writers reach into, I mean, the, they said it at the time, into the very depths of the country, right? Um, and I think that the Soviets were successful at creating children's literature as a as a mass phenomenon for the first time. So that in itself is revolutionary, right? Um, what I discovered the further I researched the book was that and, and as I was observing how images, these images of the peasant and the priests and so on had progressed or had changed over time, was that the Soviets were really obsessed with managing the past and managing the literature of the past. And for them, that was a really big problem, how to handle this literature of the past. Because on the one hand, they couldn't, they didn't want to, although there were certain factions that said, let's just not reproduce the literature of the past at all. But, but that was not the winning, um, the winning line. The winning line was let's, let's pass the literature of the past along to new readers, but let's be very, very careful about the narrative that we attach to this literature of the past. And so it was, it actually wasn't permitted for a, for an artist to illustrate a children's book, or any artist, not even just a children's book, any illustrations, you could not just illustrate it as a period piece. So for instance, you could not be uh, get a commission to uh, illustrate Anna Karenina and then spend all your time reproducing the drawing rooms of the 19th century and the, the dress that that uh, woman of Anna's class would have worn at the time. There was actually a cultural directive that that disallowed this because that was considered to be a, a narrow retros. Yes, but also it was called being retrospectivist, and you you were not you could not just depict the past simply as the past. You had to find the connection to today in quotation marks to the to Soviet times, and so artists had the task of 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 uh, doing a real balancing act of finding the of finding today within yesterday which was was sometimes not very easy uh, and as to the question about period periodization uh, I ran into this problem when I was trying to think about what the subtitle for the book should be so I really wanted to have illustrated children's literature under Lenin and Stalin, but I had an early reader of the book say, what does that even mean under Lenin and under Stalin? And I, I understand the question because when you, as you know, you're an, you're an historian and what you have the period that we call under Lenin, but Lenin dies in 1924. And then you don't really have Stalin consolidating power till 1928. Some, and so you have four years of under Lenin where Lenin isn't even alive. And so it's complicated, right? It's always, it's complicated. But what I, I was thinking that for readers, especially non-expert readers, will know the, will, will recognize Lenin and Stalin and they'll, they'll connect in that way. And for us, the specialists, 
we might have our own, we might have a, a whole um, range of other questions. If I, if I was asked to do my own specialist periodization, I would say um, that children's literature, when it, when private publishing houses like um, uh, Raduga, the rainbow publishing house. Yeah. They, they produced incredible things. Um, when the, for the public, when the private publishing houses were existing alongside the public ones in the 1920s, that should be its own period. And then in the early 1930s, you have a, a big change where the state basically takes over all publishing and you have the um, establishment of universal public school education. You actually have a literature curriculum that is reaching everybody you have the creation of literature textbooks for the first time starting in the mid-1930s. That should be a different period because what, what's being produced in children's literature is being produced with different tools now. And then I would argue that the wartime period is also a completely separate period because the, the, the themes that come to the fore, the, the, what's considered to be important for children as, uh, as preparation or as, how, what, as the way that they're supposed to be responding to the war is different. But that's way too long to put in one subtitle. So I, I stick with under Lennon and Stalin. <laughs> I actually like that about your book because it's so often the uh, titles of uh, books are so dry. They would be 1917 to 1953. And as you said, again, uh, for the... Uh, outside reader can be confusing or they cannot understand right away why 1953, right? So it's, I thought it's great, Lenin and Stalin. It's very straightforward and um, both specialists and non-specialists can understand what we're talking, what what it is about, right? Uh, you know you know what? I'll jump then to the question um, I have a later on my list, but I'll jump since we're touched upon the school curriculum and, uh, you know, we already spoke about Pushkin. I was wondering uh, about that educational aesthetical uh, shift of the 30s and then the 40s, um, and especially about the wartime uh, literature. Do you think that uh, we... Um, you know, the historians and literary scholars might find parallels between the time of the third Stalinist Cultural Revolution and later World War II or Vilika Atechistana Vaina, the 40s, and nowadays Putin's Russia with its, or at least Putin's Russia during the 10th and early 2020s with its militarization of childhood and resurrection of ideas of all kinds of martyrdom. Uh, these ideas are often channeled onto children and young adults um, through um, all kinds of mediums, starting with books and with advertising, whatever, pro- propaganda. Do you think these two um, periods, which are almost 100 years apart, can be um, similar in a way? I think that you have hit the nail on the head, and this is the this is the work that is waiting to be written. Um, so, so listeners uh, who are who are poised to pick a new topic for their PhD or for their first book project, this is the one that is waiting to be written. 
yes, there is there are definitely parallels that that can be drawn between these two periods, um, 100 years apart, as you say, which is which is just incredible if you think about it. And I think that um, my attention has been drawn to this by our colleague in in children's liter- literature, Olga Varonina. She has drawn my attention to two um, cases that are very interesting. So the first one is uh, this campaign by the United Russia Party, which is the pro the leading party in Russia and the pro Putin party in Russia. Um, their campaign for to to gather and collect children's books, and it's a it's a program that's called Kinigi Detsim Donbassa. So you take you take children's books, so uh, books for the children of the Donbass, basically. You collect them, and it's. Uh, and you send them to the children of the so-called freed territories who have been, um, according to the, their narrative, deprived of the right to read in Russian. And for it's for um, and they've even been been sent into uh, Mariupol and places and places like that. So you, you can see right away that children's literature is being instrumentalized as a propaganda tool. Uh, in a very interesting way. And for me, uh, what has been fascinating is which books are being collected <laughs> and sent. And so I've had a very uh, brief peek at which books are being sent um, and which books are considered the very, very important like vessels of cultural knowledge that you would need to send to a child deprived of their this is also in quotation marks that you can't of see deprived, <laughs> deprived of their Russophone education. Mm-hmm. Right. And the percentage that are the Soviet classics is large. Yeah. And then, so the, a full analysis of this awaits, it, it awaits its scholar. Um, but the second case that uh, Olga Varonina has talked about that I think is really interesting is from 2018. And once again, we have United Russia campaigning to have a, a book that's called The Secret School of Young Heroes, Tainai Shkola Unik Heroev, included, yeah, included in the national literature curriculum. So it's a newly written book. It's co-authored, which is also fascinating, by a 10-year-old boy and his mother. Uh, and in many ways, the plot of this book and the and reminds me of works like um, Tale of the Military Secret, Malchishki Balchish, right? From, so there's your Stalin era fairy tale about a boy hero who is protecting the values of the nation and who is called upon to protect those values up to and including his arrest, his torture, his uh, death by firing squad. Uh, in this book, you've got a plot based around a boy hero who is um, fighting against a global virus that is infecting people with indifference and disloyalty. Wow, sounds horrible. I know. And you have, so he joins a secret organization of heroic children who are expected to self-sacrifice. So here again, we have the the martyrdom theme, which, as you know, um, comes to the fore during wartime with teenage real life teenage heroes who then have have these biographies that are created about them, like Zoya Kosme Demianskaya, right? Like this this young girl who was um, captured by the by the Nazis and other young um, 
teenage martyrs, basically, from World War II. And it's up to this boy hero in this 2018 book to uh, conduct a special operation. And of course, the word spetsoperatia is now like a, a, a keyword because that's what Putin has called this operation in um, his invasion of Ukraine to to uh, de- can decontaminate the enemy's computer of the of this indifference and disloyalty. So there are absolutely um, important parallels to be drawn between what's what's happening in terms of militarization of children's literature in the Soviet Union and Tale of Military Secret is pre World War II, right? It's written in the nineteen yeah written in the nineteen thirties, um, and and uh, Arkady Gaidar, of course, is the is is the writer, and he wrote several books um, that have child heroes who are um, who are also mini military heroes of the of the Soviet Union. So, uh, yeah, this is an important theme. I see. I see. Some stories that you describe in the book, um, when you read them, they're pretty mind blowing. So. Uh, for me, for example, on page 25, I um, found that you mentioned how in the late 1920s, mothers were encouraged to become storytellers, skazichnitsi, right, um, for their children. So that it's it was a minor episode, but I was just curious about it. And that particular episode made me think of the Stalinist Soviet state as a whole. And I'm sorry... I keep coming back to the 30s. It's what I am fascinating with, the, the Stalinist uh, state. So, uh, of course, you, you, can, you can see it in my questions. But do you think that the, that the state or even Stalin himself in a way became such a uh, You mentioned about the state and the fascination of uh, the Soviets with storytelling and uh, changing of presenting history, but maybe we can really talk about Stalin himself, Stalin as a Skazichnik, because you also um, mentioned Katerina Clark in your book and her observation about the fantastic age in the Soviet literature. So can the same term be applied to children's literature and specifically to its illustrations of the time? Yeah, I think so. And first of all, never apologize for being fascinated with the 1930s because <laughs> I, I share your fascination. So we can be uh, we can we can share share that fascination right. together. Um, yes, the fascination with and the contradictory uh, lessons and and ideas around the fairy tale in the 1930s are absolutely incredible. So on the one hand, you have this very high profile group, the pedologists, which it's, it's an, a crazy sounding name anyway. So pedologists are, are educative theorists who are maintaining that all literature has to be class-based, right? It's the, the uh, it, even though in English, pedologist sounds like they're a bicycling group, but <laughs> but they're the um, they're they are Soviet educative theorists. And then at the exact same time, like within a year of of each other, you have these journals that are produced for mothers, Soviet mothers, that are encouraging them to become fairy tale narrators for their own children in order to pass on these values of the. 
um, that, that, that are so important to, for their children. And so it's absolutely, first of all, it's the fairy tale becomes something that's incredibly important, but also incredibly contradictory at exactly the same moment in history. And to say that Stalin was himself a master fairy tale narrator, I think is, is a very interesting way of looking at it because it's true that if you can frame the narrative about what's happening, I mean, you have his famous motto of the day we are, um, or, or it's a famous motto from a song of the day, we were born to make the fairy tale come true. At the same time that you have the, uh, terror going on and you have posters everywhere saying we were born to make the fairy tale come true and the, we, have, we have brought the fairy tale to reality, there's no more perfect definition of a fantastic age. And uh, absolutely children's literature is, is participating in that and is contributing to those images and those ideas and quite possibly we have a second fantastical age that is emerging on our hands. Right, right. Um, now I, I wonder if we can zoom on to one particular episode from your book, and um, that is a story of the evolution of illustrations of Pushkin's Skazka by P. Rabotnik Balde. Um, so I wonder, it's a fascinating story. Um, I wonder if you can share it with our listeners, but I also want to preface this with saying that Mm, that was one of the very first book from my own childhood that I remember, you know, like maybe I was three or four, um, how my parents were reading it to me. Uh, that was the late 80s in the Soviet Union. And um, actually, after reading your book, I was tr I tried to find that edition because there were so many illustration of the illustrations of the book of this book and re-editions, but I couldn't find. So maybe it was some cheap um, uh, re-edition from the 1980s or, well, anyway. Um, so can you please talk about this particular um, work and its many illustrations from the pre-revolutionary Russia to the Leninist and Stalinist era? Okay, I'll be happy to, but let me ask you, what did uh, Balda look like in your childhood book do you, do you say i think he looked pretty much uh, very like a uh, russian fairy tale like like um i'll just just say i think i think he was uh sort of big and strong but he also looked very like slavic russian like blonde stuff like that like like classical Russian guy. Uh, and maybe it also coincided with the popular, in the 80s, there was a rise of like Russian nationalism and in the Soviet Union. So maybe that's why, but I, I, I don't know. I don't remember. So he was kind of wearing that, probably the embroidered blouse, mm -hmm. maybe the, yep, exactly. the, the, the boots looking very heroic. Yes. Like yes. That? Okay. yes. Yeah. Okay. So to start my story, I'll, I'll say that we know what Pushkin had in mind when about his his what his peasant should look like because he sketched it. So this is the one uh, case study that I have in my book where I know exactly how the the writer himself pictured um, the the characters in the books because he sketched his peasant and he sketched his his priest. And what what I found was that if you compare if you look at pre-revolutionary uh, illustrations, you have a peasant who is 
middle-aged. This is what, this is the original versions. He's middle-aged. His shoulders are stooped from long years of hard labor. Uh, he is the same height as the priest. The priest is the one who is uh, looking kind of crafty um, and dishonest in the, in the original illustrations. And then over time, you ha uh, during the Soviet era, you have a peasant who is becoming, uh, because the Soviets needed to show that the peasant was doing well, and because the illustrations had to connect with today and not just be renditions of yesterday, you have a peasant who becomes younger and younger and younger until he settles. He settles kind of late teen, early 20s, right? And he becomes more and more attractive. Um, and he is standing up straighter and straighter and straighter with broad shoulders. He is not bent over from years of hard work. He's looking extremely heroic. For some reason, he's becoming blonder and blonder over the years. This must be the the like the attributes of of the typical Slavic look, right? The the blonder and blonder over the years, and then um, he at at the end of his evolution is standing usually at least a foot taller than the than the priest, and meanwhile the priest is going through all kinds of changes himself in the in the way that he looks so the in the 1920s he is changing rapidly um he's he's he is obviously the villain of the work but sometimes he's kind of like a puny intellectual character he has like little, little glasses on his nose um sometimes he is enormously fat and overfed and obviously like living off everybody else's labor but in general, the priest stays old and smaller, and and uh, the peasant hero just kind of rises through the through the decades, and then stays that way. And one of the fascinating discoveries of of the book for me was how much uh, the the images and um, just the 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 way that children's works were placed at certain grade levels are all that coming from the Stalin era. There, that that didn't change. The images that were created in the Stalin era stayed. So the the peasant the image that you got during the Stalin era remained, and the years in which you were deemed the correct age to read a certain work were were decided in the Stalin era, and they stayed. Like it's it's really um, fascinating how influential the 1930s are for for a lot of what came later in the Soviet Union. And you also mentioned Kanyok Garbonok. Maybe you can talk about that case study as well. Uh, what was the evolution of the Kanyok Garbonok's illustrations? That's a book by Yershov, right? That's right. It's one of the most famous Russian fairy tales, and it's a it has a, a peasant hero as well, who is Ivan Durak, who's Ivan the Fool. And you know, he, in early illustrations, uh, shortly after the after the revolution. He is depicted very much like the fool. He uh, lo basically looks like an imbecile in most of the uh, most of the most of the illustrations. And he's kind of um, he's like that uh, older teenage, uh, like probably seventeen, eighteen. He's a young he's a young man already. Um, and as we go through the decades with Ivan the Fool in for this particular fairy tale, 
he becomes younger and younger and younger at the same time as the story is being marketed. I mean, they wouldn't use the word marketed, but aimed at um, a younger and younger and younger reader until he finally settles at about like a preschool age. He's probably around four or five years old. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it becomes so much, much. So he marries at the end, right? There well, is this happy... is... Him. This is what's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is what's very awkward, probably for the illustrator, is that he starts as this young child. So I think it, the idea was for the the reader, the viewer, to um, sense the connection between himself and and Ivan Durak, like they're about the same age. Um, but the, you're right. At the end, he has to win the hand of the maiden and get married at the end. And you can't get married when you're five years old. So the, the, illust, the illustrator has to age Yvonne, uh, you know, by like a very fast 10 years at the end. <laughs> Though maybe it was, you know, at the end, he jumps into this boiling water, the milk, maybe that the milk. Aged, yeah. <laughs> aged him. <laughs> no, no, he's because he's holding the hand of the maiden before he jumps. So he has to look <sighs> older already. Otherwise, it's awkward. Uh. She'd be holding the hand of a of a toddler. Sure. <laughs> uh, but the um, the horse is supposed to be tiny and deformed because he has got the hump. He's the humpback horse, and he also goes through this miraculous transformation over the years. So he goes from looking kind of like this strange, deformed kind of creature uh, to basically having a pony makeover <laughs> so by by the by the mid mid 1930s he's got these bright cheerful eyes he's got the the prancing mane he's he is not deformed at all that you can barely see the hump it's a tiny little hump and uh he's looking very attractive uh, along the same lines he's more like a a toy like a or a fun sidekick mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and actually uh... This made me think of when you talked about the the cultural importance uh, that Stalinist uh, literature and you know children's literature and illustrations still uh, carry uh, up 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 to nowadays. I remember that's a fan fact. Maybe it's uh, completely random, but when I first met my um, uh, my fiance, that my my boyfriend at the time, uh, his mom. Uh, my future mother-in-law, the first thing she told me, uh, and she was probably showing off and trying to tell me how great her son is, she said when he was five years old or maybe six years old, he was reciting Kanyok Garbunok word to word from the beginning till till, till the end. And it just I just so vividly remember this. Why? I don't know why it was so important to her, but Kanyok Garbunok and the fact that child could recite, you know, remember it completely so it's still important it's that you know modern days russia and people still you know um attribute uh great importance to this book absolutely i mean russian culture is a reading culture this is something to be envied about about Russian culture in our in our digital age, right? In the Soviet Union, they they've called themselves the Sami Chitayami Narod, right? We're the most readerly people in the world, and uh, there is a lot of educative status that's attached to to reading. and And Kanyak Garbunok is long, so for your 
I mean, your husband <laughs> could recite. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was true, actually. <laughs> he was obviously brilliant. <laughs> so now I'm just curious, and again, maybe this is a little silly and simplistic, but Megan, can you share uh, what is who is your favorite Soviet illustrator and why? And also, speaking of illustrations, which, by the way, book has a lot of them. I really like this about this book. It almost reads like a, uh, you know, an, a fancy art album. Um, so I really, really enjoyed it again. Uh, but I, I'm also curious about this, uh, the images on the cover of the book. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah, the images, first of all, I need to highly praise the art department at the University of Toronto Press because I love that cover. I think it's so beautiful and it captures the aesthetic of the time perfectly. So this is this was one of the joys of researching and writing a book is, and it goes back to your question about detective work. So when, when you start on a big project, you start working in the archives and you find all kinds of little gems in all of these strange places that you never thought you would find a gem. And uh, the works from the 1920s and 30s are now designated rare books so you have to have special permission to go into these places and you have to be there in person like you can't just um get a, a copy of it sent through the mail or anything like that so it's it that your detective work is becoming uh more serious <laughs> and the the cover art comes from a poster uh, from 1928, and it's one of the posters that the state publisher used, and it's called So like what I should read to my child, which is also this wonderful part of Soviet reading culture, which is the idea that there are certain works that will enrich your child's life and you should be reading them to children. And, you know, it's worthwhile listing all these these books and showing the book covers and, and reaching out to mothers and this, well, fathers too but i think in general it's the russian mother who directs the childhood reading that um and this this what the book my book cover uh i discovered this poster what to read to my child and it's from 1928 and i found it in uh the university of willamette in oregon Actually, it was my, I I worked there before I got my job at the University of Victoria, briefly, and it's my colleague, Mark Conliffe, who said, I have something that I think you might be interested in. Who knows how that poster ever got there? Who knows why? It's the only one there. <laughs> and yeah, and so I, I contacted the, the library and managed to get a copy of it. And then the art department just took those colors, those vibrant primary colors and the images of like people who are um, running towards the future and, and, you know, holding the flag and reading and, you know, just this happy childhood, the image of the happy childhood with it, with its books. I was really, really, really pleased with that. Also the the train, which probably symbolizes the progress, you know, moving forward. Right. And like people of the North, right. I see the two, uh, Alini, uh, it's it's fascinating, it, right? It has so many little images. So it's, yeah, I, I've never oh, actually yes. seen this poster. Oh yes, well you'll have to go to Willamette to, <laughs> in Oregon <laughs> to see the original. 
Um, but you were asking who who my favorite illustrator is now, and that is a really tough question because I think we've we, hopefully we've convinced everyone listening that the that the illustrators from this age were absolutely incredible and it, their artwork was so beautiful. But if if forced to to pick a favorite, I'll, I'm going to choose Evgeny Charushin. He his work is so incredible. So he um, is well known for doing illustrations of animals. And he did this, he, um, he was a writer as well as an illustrator. So have you read any of his books? Uh, I, yes, I think I saw a lot yeah. of them in the RGDB, Russian State Children's Library. Uh, yes. 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 So when he does, he has he he has this beautiful way of doing textures. So when you look at his the feathers on his birds, or you look at the fur on the animals, there it's so beautiful. You just you can almost um, feel like you could reach out and touch the these these animal figures. So he is currently my favorite, uh, Yevgeny Charushin, but um, it's very, very difficult to pick because there's so many wonderful artists working in this period. Mine is definitely Konashevich, but again, it's something for, I think one of the books, one of the first books that I read with my mom was uh, illustrated by Konashevich. So, so the picture's really ingrained into my mind. And Charushin is amazing, I agree. So... Megan, we are, we've taken uh, a lot of your time already. I really would like to, you would like to thank you uh, for answering my questions. And my final, very final question would be um, to maybe you can talk a little bit about your uh, future plans uh, or the current project you're working on. Um, any plans for the new book? Maybe a book about uh, Charushin or um, <laughs> other other illustrators. Uh, yes. So as you can tell, I'm still spending lots of time in archives looking at children's books from 1920s and 1930s, and I'm not getting tired of it. So my my new book project that I'm working on is uh, it almost comes. It seems to me almost to be the sequel to Picturing the Page. So. The, the idea is what works from the Soviet period are still being read by, uh, by today's child. And how is that selection process made? So, so a couple of things I discovered early on that were fascinating to me, which is that um, of the best-selling authors today in the 2020s, um, six out of 10 of them are Soviet. And so that that's very interesting, considering that we are in a new ideological period, and uh, and that so, some of these concepts may uh, that are from these books, which may be almost a hundred years old, um, might be a little uh, old-fashioned or strange mm, outdated. or uh, mm. yeah, outdated. Appear to be completely from a completely different period, but still, these are the are you know being passed down to a new generation and newly illustrated and that once again the my fascination comes in with how are how are the illustrations connecting to today meaning like actually today today's children how how is the soviet aesthetic um be uh influencing their life um and one of the so one of my idea about one of the first chapters has to do with uh, how animals and nature are depicted. 
be, because we're in a completely different um, atmosphere right now about our relationship to nature and the climate. But still, these these books like do you, do you remember reading Lesnaya Gazeta? Um, that one I by Marshak or what was it? No, I don't think so. No, maybe I just no. Forgot. It's by B- it's by Bianchi, Vitali Bianchi. Ah, Bianchi, right, Vitali Bianchi, right. Yeah, so you've probably read some of his books about nature. He was He's a famous nature writer from the 1920s. And Lesnaya Gazeta is about, um, it's like a newspaper from the forest, of course, that's its name. But it's written by the by the inhabitants of the, of the forest who um, have these things happening at all these different times of year. So it's spring, we're building our nests. <laughs> and it's so wonderfully written and so beautifully illustrated and it and it's still being republished today for children and it, i think it's delightful but we have this completely different attitude towards nature and preserving nature now than the soviets did so to me that's a that's one of the fascinating questions that i'm hoping to get into that is super interesting uh, again thank you so much like your current pre- project um sounds so great to me i'm looking forward to reading your new book uh and uh megan i want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed your um you talking about the book and i hope our listeners uh, will do as well and again thank you for coming uh to the show you are very welcome palina <laughs>